0: My guest today is Professor Martin Eichenbaum, who is a professor of economics at Northwestern University and the co director of the Center for International Economics and Development. His research focuses on macroeconomics, international economics, and monetary theory and policy. He is a fellow of the Econometric Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a co editor of the American Economic Review. Welcome, Marty.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: I want to start with a paper that is very topical, Bridging the COVID-19 Recession, in which you say policymakers in the COVID-19 era face two critical challenges. First, they must design policies that improve the trade-off between economic activity and health outcomes. And second, they must design policies to improve the long-run damage that COVID-19 induced recession inflicts on the economy. You want to talk a bit about uh, both the tactical interventions that you see as well as uh, more strategically what uh, what policymakers
1: need to do? Sure. Let me um, separate those two challenges. Uh, the first challenge uh, is uh, how to deal with this so-called trade-off between health issues uh, and uh, economic issues. So one of the... the uh, key problems that uh, we initially faced in the panic of, of, of COVID, if you like, was this notion that uh, we needed to shut things down to get uh, the health situation under control.
2: Mm-hmm. And that,
1: that, that, of course, is quite reasonable. Um, as an economist, one of the things that uh, became apparent to me was that epidemiology models were incredibly useful, but they... Don't allow for human beings in the model. What do I mean by that? There's this two-way interaction between economics and uh, epidemiology that is not recognized uh, in, in the typical classic epidemiology models. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, the amount of market activity that people engage in, whether mm. consumption, uh, work, et cetera, obviously it depends on people's perceptions of how risky those activities are. Right. Right. So nobody wants to go to rock concerts, flying airlines, et cetera. That's one interaction that, you know, risk in a health sense translates into economic decisions uh, and, and overall uh, economic uh, state of the economy. Uh, on the other hand, um, when we engage in less market activity that affects the risks from health. Mm-hmm. So one thing an economist naturally might ask is, well, are we going to get the right amount of a recession from a social perspective? Right. Well, it turns out that using sort of very standard economics, so this is not fancy economics, you quickly come to the conclusion that even though you, you, we will have a recession, we would have had a recession regardless of what the government did. Mm-hmm. But in the short run, that recession wouldn't be large enough. How could I reach such a bizarre conclusion? Well, it turns out if you think of an individual person, they take the total amount of infections as given. Yeah. I don't think I can affect the total amount of infections uh, in, in, in a very large crowd or in the economy as a whole. Just in the same way that when I get in my car, I don't think I'm going to affect the total amount of pollution on the planet. <laughs> right. But if each and every one of us thinks that way, we get way too much pollution. Hmm. And what is sort of the standard answer to the pollution problem is, well, you tax activities when people are getting benefits and they don't fully internalize the costs. Right. So that's exactly why we think that in the short run, when there's a, a COVID type of mass infection, that the government actually needs to have containment measures to make the recession even worse than it would be otherwise. Mm. So that that sounds awful, right? Sort of what Um, you
0: call uh, sort of simple containment, right? Uh, Correct. Essentially kind of a blanket policy.
1: Yeah. Right. The brute force uh, reaction was, you know, I don't condition on your age, I don't condition on your health, on various comorbidities. I just say, you know, no one's allowed to go out. Israel is a good example of that. They, they right now are about to reinstitute a blanket um, 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 a shutdown uh, across the country. So that, that should come in a week or two. Um, it turns out those things are not politically sustainable. Right. They, it turns out they're optimal if you do the um, relative. So what do I mean by optimal? You could do nothing or you could do simple containment. Simple containment does improve the situation in the short run because you're saving a lot of lives but there's an awful lot of pain that goes with it. And it turns out they're not politically sustainable. So the challenge then is, can we think of more clever ways to achieve um, dealing with the quote pollution problem in ways that are less painful, that lessen the trade-off between short run economic and health consequences?
0: Yeah, so so Marty, one interesting thing about this issue is that we have a lot of different experiments being run Around the world, right? So, you can look at New Zealand, you can look at South Korea, Germany to some extent. I don't know exactly what they did. Um, you know, your point is that if you do a simple blanket containment, it's not sustainable, and when it breaks, you go back to sort of uh, square one. Yeah, uh, and that's going to create a huge amount of issue um, in the latter part of it, right? Absolutely. And so, successful countries like New Zealand and
1: South Korea—what exactly did they do? Well, so the, the lessons are the countries are really different. I mean, I'm yeah. writing, writing a paper for the IMF for some conference, and you look at different countries, and you you look at different cultures, and you look at different problems—they're different, right? So, I, I don't think that there's a simple bullet. Hmm. Where it's a, you know, if we were all South Koreans, all that entails, we would do better, (laughs) right, right, we would maintain social distance, we would do tracing, we would listen to uh, the instructions of the health authorities. Um, uh, You know, those things just vary. uh, Hmm. And, you know, what's feasible in South Korea may not be feasible here, relatively homogeneous population, etc. But I think there's some obvious things that we can do in the short run. Yeah, for example. The returns to testing, randomized testing, are enormous. They're demonst- I mean, we test for two reasons. One is to help the economists and the epidemiologists refine their parameters. Mm. You know, that's easy. But more importantly, um, because lots of uh, infections are asymptomatic, yeah, uh, we need to do randomized testing. And when we do that randomized testing, when we find people that are infected, we need to contain them, right? We need to quarantine right. them. And that may not be entirely voluntary. It can be very humane, but you know, if you have a disease, you're not free to go to the theater. You're not free to go to work. Um, So that's one obvious uh, uh, thing that we can do. Um, Masks ought to be, you know, penalties for not wearing a mask. It's a very—I truly don't understand the politicization of masks. (laughs) We don't want to talk about politics here. But um, you know, you need a license to drive a car. You need a license to get married. So we accept the principle of the state imposing some limitations on what we do. Right. We, yeah. we accept that you can't scream fire in a crowded theater.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so like your point before, uh, so you need to have in a diverse country like the U.S., it seems to me that you have to have some tangible penalties. You need to have a tax. Um, on you know uh, bad behavior like not wearing masks. Otherwise, you're not going to get compliance. And you know we um, we 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 have fifty different policies going on, <laughs> uh, yep. as if we have fifty different countries. Uh, but we don't have you know uh, borders around these states. And so even if one state does it really well. Uh, three weeks later, you're back to square one because you know uh, the other, the adjacent state did nothing.
1: Well, I, that's right. I mean, I look. I mean, th- there's a tension here, right? We have to accept the constraints of the constitution, and different states have different rights. And Washington, uh, for good or for bad, can't tell everybody what to do. Mm-hmm. So that's just you know that's different in Israel. That's different in South Korea. Uh, I'm not, you know, so different countries will have different political and legal constraints. That's where leadership comes in. We don't want to get political. uh, The, press, the you know, Washington has levers with which it can lead, but it cannot lead by fiat. So that's just a constraint that we have to accept. And, you know, you do see uh, one of the advantages of the federal system. um, We have natural experimentation. Mm -hmm. So we can learn from each other. Uh, So when a country like Russia makes gets it right, it gets it really right. And when it gets <laughs> it wrong, it gets it really wrong. Right. We have a more hedged uh, society, but if politicians and people can honestly learn from the experiments, random, they're not quite random, but learn from the experiments of other states. And you know, Illinois, I think, has done a pretty good job where I live. Hmm. Um, not perfect, uh, but I think it's done a pretty good job. And there are lessons that other states can learn from us and that we can learn from them. But on issues like masks, that's a pretty small tax uh, to impose on individuals, right. uh, in 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 you know for, for the social good. So. and so from an
0: intervention perspective, uh, you did some sort of econometric models around this, right? So right. You, you could have uh, choice one, um, no action; choice two, some sort of uh, simple containment; right. and choice three, uh, more you know thoughtful. Um, intervention, and these three dif- these three policy issues have different effects. If you yep. look look around six months, one year time frame, right?
1: Correct. Yeah, and it's very clear that uh, the worst outcome is doing nothing. Yeah. The second to worst outcome are these sort of brute force, simple containment measures, but you get dramatic gains in terms of deaths. And uh, the size of the recession, if you go to what we call smart containment, and you can see how that works, that if people are confident that when they go to work, that there aren't a lot of other infected people, we will have a much healthier economy because people will be more willing to go to work, more willing to consume, et cetera. So smart containment is a win-win. Right, right. So you just improve the trade-offs on the different dimensions.
0: Yeah, so... Um, can you put some numbers on it, Marty? So, you know, what sort of the GDP fallout? Yeah, if we were to run these three experiments from from start, what
1: would you expect to see? Well, you know, it's interesting you ask that. When we first did these um, uh, numbers, we, we were quite shocked at what we were getting. And your audience is sophisticated enough to know that, you know, models are just that. They're models. They have to be taken with a... Uh, with a grain of salt. Um, but in our very first paper, the numbers turned out to be not bad at all. Mm. So, um, in terms of GDP where I, you know, we, the initial model said that if you did nothing, uh, you would land up, I think we said basically having, a at an annualized rate a 25% drop roughly mm. in uh, GDP. Um, That's right. I'm looking at the pictures now, but, you know, 25 to 30 percent drop in in annualized GDP. And that's pretty much what we're see what we we might have seen. Yeah. And just an enormous numbers of deaths. If you went to simple containment, uh, you had a much you had a a, um, you had a uh, larger recession initially, Hmm. uh, um, but many fewer deaths. Uh, If you go to smart containment. Um, the trade-offs were qu- uh, really quite dramatically uh, different. Uh, you went to um, uh, uh, a recession that was about a third as large. Yeah. Well, in the most extreme case, you, if you really, and we don't have the science or the infrastructure to do this, if you could really do massive randomized testing on a very frequency basis, mm. uh, you would basically eliminate COVID very quickly and the economic implications very, very quickly. To a first order, you would have very few deaths and very small drop in GDP. That's more aspirational because, as we all know, literally the act of getting up the ability to do randomized testing on that kind of a basis is just not something we're capable of doing right now. Although you could argue that had we started in February, we would be in such a position to, to do that now.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, politicians sometimes argue that it's one or the other either you get good economics or you take care of people in this. Case. I fundamentally
1: disagree. Yeah. yeah. So that a, a central message of all of this research is that that is a false choice. Right. Um, that uh, to the extent that people are more confident about their objective health when they engage in market activity, we will have more of it. And by the way, we, we have amazing data now. Uh, I'm working on a project with uh, various people from Portugal where we can track literally, um, uh, at the individual level, mm-hmm. we can control for age income in the simplest terms, you know, take for example, public servants in Portugal, of whom there are many, um, they're not worried about losing their job. So yeah. one question we asked was how do these people act as a function of age and comorbidity in terms of their consumption expenditures? So if I look at a 60, you know, the, the probability or of, of death from COVID is very nonlinear in age. So the medicine is very sharp in terms of who should be really afraid. Mm-hmm. Using this sort of super micro level, that's exactly what we see at the individual level, that this nonlinear drop in consumption as people get older or comorbidity. Um, so people are responding to the economic incentives in these models. And they those incentives tell you, get the health situation under control, the economy will very quickly also get under control. There really is no persistent, robust recovery in the economy until we get the health situation under control.
0: Yeah, and, you know, one thing we haven't really uh, looked at um, is sort of the long-term effects of COVID-19. So, you know, people have been talking about herd immunity. Sweden has a policy that was really trying to get to herd immunity. Uh, but you know this thing mutates, it evolves, it has different strains. There is data on reinfection. We don't know about the long-term effects. Uh, about a million people who recovered from uh, 18, 19 Spanish flu, 10 years later got Parkinson's disease. So if you look at disease burden of COVID-19, we haven't even begin to um, aggregate the total burden of the disease. So any policy that basically says, hey, let's get 60% of the population infected and we are done, seems like a really bad policy.
1: You know, I think it's um, not something I'm personally ethically, I mean, I know I'm here not as a rabbi or as a priest, (laughs) but it seems like giving up and just letting a bunch of people die, surely we can do better than that. Um, Especially when we don't know, as you say, what the real cost of that is in the long run. Um, right. and it seems to me there are obvious things that we can do that uh, really don't impact too much on people's individual freedom uh, mm-hmm. that can make a big difference, like masks. You know, testing, seem, you know, Larry Summers, if you, if you think about the cost to society, I think Summers did some, Larry Summers, ex-Secretary of Treasury, yeah. uh, did some calculation of what it costs the U.S. economy per day uh this recession and the numbers are just uh, just absolutely astounding uh i can tell you what they are i'm just looking them mm-hmm. up right now i think larry's um was something like 80 million dollars um 80 billion a week
0: 80 billion, I mean, 80 yeah.
1: billion dollars a week Right. Right. So because I mean, there's a big economy, right. Twenty trillion dollars, roughly right. if you have. a, You know, so it's just a, a massive number. And even if Larry's off by half, <laughs> right, let's suppose he's off by half and it's 40 billion.
2: Yeah.
1: Ask yourself, what are these social returns to testing? Of investing in testing facilities. Right. Well, to the extent that we can make this recession shorter by ending the health crisis, this is a terrific investment uh, and I would take it in a second.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's uh, interesting that you you listen to politicians, you listen to policymakers. Uh, you don't really hear, uh, Marty. Make you know, I don't spend a lot of time. Uh, you don't really hear systematic analyses, right? That says if if I do this, this is a total economic impact on the system type arguments. It, it's it seems really ad hoc. It's a group of people sitting around trying to do something.
1: You know, it's complicated. I mean, I think, so I have some experience with policymakers. Yeah. And there's an enormous heterogeneity across them. But they're they're like firefighters. Right. I mean, to be totally honest, they're firefighters. And it's easy for academics like me to sit on the side. Well, if I was in charge, I would do thoughtful, you know. <laughs> These guys are, you know, they're, they're running, you know, their building's burning down. They got to do something. They got 50 thousand constituents all of them want different things and as I say the models are really you know I was quite shocked when I went back to March and my co-authors and I uh, were looking at these models uh, you know the, as I say the scientists know a lot about the science yeah it turns out each infection is different you know but they know a lot what they don't know a lot about is how that interacts with social science right and so I can't honestly go to, you know, a politician and say, look, it's March. Here's what I absolutely know with enormous confidence. What it really has to be is more of the nature of a thoughtful conversation um, of probabilities, of uncertainties, of worst case outcomes, and they don't have time for it.
0: Right, right.
1: And yeah, it became,
0: uh, becomes very complex. So other thing that I, I uh, thought of, uh, Mari, I don't know if this is relevant. The policy choices is also a function of initial conditions that you're dealing with. For example, the tri-state area where I live, um, you know, there is enough evidence now the disease was you know, rampant in November, December timeframe. The first intervention was more like in March. Mm-hmm. And so if you already have 30% of the population infected, for example, I came from New York, early January with 103 degree fever that lasted for three three days and it went away. I don't know if it was COVID or something else, but, um, indications are, you know, 25, 30% of the population might already have been infected by the time we recognized it That's and right. started interventions. Those initial conditions would matter, right? What, what we do.
1: Oh, no, no doubt about it. And, and their initial conditions can be very subtle as well. Um, uh, In terms, I'll give you an example, comorbidities, right? So we know African-American population is suffering disproportionately, Hispanic population as well, uh, in terms of health outcomes. Also in terms of economic outcomes for other reasons, but just health outcomes. And part of that is the legacy of poverty, Mm. uh, uh, comorbidity, uh, lifestyle choices, you know, in terms of nutrition, etc., um, some of which is voluntary, some of which is forced on individuals because of objective circumstances, but those are initial conditions. Right. So in Chicago, if you look at who is dying, it's wildly disproportionate. Hmm. Uh, you Go to the south side where there are lots of comorbidities and poverty, etc. Uh, medical facilities, wildly different on the south side than the north side. Hmm. It, it's a fact that on the north side where I live, Um, You know, thank God um, we can afford it. Uh, There's an excess of medical capacity Mm. during this crisis. Uh, That is obviously not true on the south side. That's a kind of an initial social initial condition. Right. And
0: so interventions need to be customized almost community by community.
1: Some of them do. Absolutely. And, and, And some of them we have to make hard choices like, Are you willing to take away some medical capacity from the rich North Shore to redistribute it on a real-time basis to the South Shore? What is the right ethical, economic, and health uh, framework to think about such a difficult choice?
0: Yeah, so uh, um, I want to jump into a broader paper uh, in the area of monetary policy, which, you know, uh, your expertise and you've done a lot of work in this area uh, entitled, Rethinking Fiscal Policy in an Era of Low Interest Rates, in which you say secular stagnation and low real interest rates compel us to rethink the extent to which fiscal policy should be used to combat recessions. Uh, and the paper argues that we should adopt a system of asymmetric automatic stabilizers. Uh, before we get into it, Marty, I have, I have a confession to make. Uh, in my note to you, I mentioned I went to school at Northwestern What I did not mention was that I went to graduate engineering there. Uh, And when I was getting ready to go to business school, I applied there, but they wouldn't take me back. So I I had to go a few kilometers south to Hyde Park. Uh, But more importantly, after the MBA, when I went to work for corporations, Mm -hmm. uh, I would say it took less than a week to recognize that most of what um, we learn in the MBA school in finance did not actually work in real companies. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, discounted cash flow analysis, net present value, cap M, and all that stuff. Uh, and most people forget economics uh, a few months after graduation. And so many of my listeners might be in the same spot. So you have to ease us into this a bit. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but automatic stabilizers, you know, uh, from what I remember, I always um, liked you know, sort of uh, things that kick in without uh, people doing something. So right. perhaps a passive monetary policy uh, and the and the stabilizers that you talk about um, are, are preferable, in my view. As humans, you know, let alone politicians and policymakers, are never good decision makers in the presence of uncertainty.
1: Right. Well, sure, sure. I mean, the um, let me take each of those in parts. A lot yeah. of aspects to that um the first part is autom- what you know what are automatic stabilizers yeah well those are think about unemployment benefits maybe the best ways to do it is to be very concrete when the economy goes into a recession two things happen automatically by law that we don't think about hmm. unemployment benefits people get them often we supplement them by additional laws but even if we didn't they're automatic stabilizers, right? You get fired, a lot of people, they get benefits from the government. That stabilizes demand. The fact that you're getting a check from the government means that you wouldn't um, uh, cut back on your consumption expenditures as much as you would otherwise. Yeah. And if many people are doing that, that helps demand and therefore the economy. Um, It also means you don't save as much every time you're worried and that can help the economy as well, right? right? If we all are afraid of a crisis and we all start, not spending, uh, that can be a self-fulfilling uh, uh, self fulfilling problem. Hmm. So that's one aspect. The other aspect that people don't always under- realize is tax rates are progressive. Right. Okay, so if you of $100,000, your marginal tax rate's higher than if you make $50,000. Right. So when the economy <clears throat> goes into a recession, tax rates fall because people fall into lower brackets or many do. Hmm. And that too puts more money in their pocket and helps stabilize demand. Mm-hmm. So those are two examples of, um, of, uh, automatic stabilizers. Um, they're supplemented in practice by a willy nilly, um, uh, uh, political process of where, when there's a really big crisis, we extend unemployment benefits, yeah. right? We did that under Obama. We did it until right now, the heroes act, uh, gave out lots of uh, payments to individuals who are unemployed, extended their unemployment benefits. But as we see, um, that doesn't always work because Congress said there's a standstill now when we may stop doing that. Right. This is your point about real-time decision-making. Yeah. Um, so that that's what an automatic stabilizer is. Well, how does that tie up with the, the, the first things that you said? Well, up until recently, let's say... 10 years ago, up until the financial crisis of 2008, everybody kind of agreed, when I say everybody, I mean, there was a lot of consensus that let's leave that to the Fed. Hmm. When there's a crisis or a recession, the Fed can has a wonderful set of tools by which it can essentially boost demand or lower demand as necessary. How do they do that? Well, they can lower interest rates, that's traditional the traditional policy. Um, And when they lower interest rates, why does that work? Well, it makes it cheaper for companies to borrow. It makes it cheaper or more attractive for people to go on vacation, to buy cars, big ticket items, which they would typically borrow to do. Uh, Refinance, right? If you lower interest rates, a lot of people refinance homes. They have extra money in their pocket and they can go spend it. So that's the traditional dial that the Fed was using. You know, we get in trouble, we lower rates, The economy starts to perk up. Inflation starts to heat up. And then they raise rates to cool the economy down. So the uh,
0: quick quick question there, Marty. So the the conventional monetary policy, they they are really trying to reduce short-term
1: rates, right? Yes, but they do it in a very... But, but okay, so great question. How does that translate into long-term rates? I just want to understand the case. You can think of an individual who... um, If I tell you that short rates are going to be persistently low, Mm. that has an effect through financial markets on long-term rates. Okay. Okay. So suppose I tell you that you can uh, take out one five-year loan or sequentially five one-year loans. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a relationship between those two. Right. So if the Fed tells you we are going to keep one-year interest rates low for the next five years... Mm -hmm. that puts downward pressure on the current five-year interest rate, Mm. right? Just because people could, if if the five-year interest rate was too low, they would say, no, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to roll over one-year interest rate loans. Right, right. Is there,
0: um, if the market really believes Fed is doing the right thing and economy is going to come back on, wouldn't they expect interest rates to go up in the future?
1: Well, so it's a balance. It's a balance Mm -hmm. and we can look at, at any point in time when the Fed acts, what are futures markets telling us about, you know, well, we can first see right now when the Fed lowers the interest rate today, Yeah. what does that do to the yield curve? So what does it do to one-year rate, two-year rates, three-year four four-year rates? And you are correct that long-term rates are less sensitive to Fed manipulation than short-term interest rates. Mm. But they are sensitive. That is to say, there are things that the Fed can do in various econometric studies Which sort of are consistent with the view that yeah, the Fed can lower mortgage rates when it lowers short-term interest rates through the mechanisms that I talked about. Right. So it's pretty pretty convincing on that dimension. Okay. So
0: generally, people agree that monetary policy it's uh, quick to effect. uh, Fiscal policy intervention is going to take time. And yep. the effects of that is sort of ambiguous for a variety of reasons. So monetary policy is the way to go yep. um, when you get into trouble. Uh, but then you have a situation when you cannot really move interest rates too much uh, beyond zero. Right. Is that the- well? So, right?
1: I mean, that's a very important point that yep. what's happened over time for a lot of reasons is for reasons not under the control of the Fed. Um, real interest rates and nominal interest rates have been declining. Uh, One way to think about what do you expect the average interest rate to be over time? Well, you can think about the Fed has an inflation target, which is about 2%. Yeah. And then you can say, well, what's the real interest rate over long periods of time, sort of inflation corrected that is determined in in the market. Maybe the real rate of return on capital is 2%. Mm. Add up two plus two, you get about 4%, which is where interest rates used to be. Yeah. what's happened over time for reasons we don't entirely understand, it's partly demographic, partly other things, uh, the real interest rate has been declining. Hmm. And uh, we have very good measures of that. And one of the wonderful things that FRED does is there's something called FRED, which is the Federal Reserve database that you can get from St. Louis. You just Google in, hmm. put in real interest rate FRED, and you can graph it and see exactly what I mean. Hmm. But that real interest rates come down, and then not surprisingly, nominal interest rates have come down. Right. So usually when a recession starts, the Fed lowers nominal interest rates. That's what they control. But if you're starting in a situation where interest rates are basically now zero, yeah. it's pretty tough to go negative. You can to some extent, but you can't really uh, push rates too negative or people start abandoning the financial system. <clears throat> there are all sorts of bad mm. things. Like that. So the Fed can't do its normal playbook. Next thing is Bernanke real time uh, said, well, okay, I can't do the normal thing. I'm going to start doing other stuff to directly work on long-term interest rates, Mm. which weren't at zero. What could he do? Well, he could buy and sell different assets. That's quantitative easing. Yeah, exactly. Quantitative easing. They could buy mortgages. They could buy longer term treasury bills. Now, for example, the Fed is actually buying various sorts of corporate debt. And by directly intervening in those markets, uh, they clearly have an effect on the yields or interest rates on those assets. Mm. But if you look at the yield curve now, we're starting off with a situation where long-term interest rates are very low. So if you just go to my friend Fred and ask 10-year interest rates, uh, you'll see that those are very, very low. Mm. Any of your listeners who are trying to put money in a bond fund will know that. (laughs) Um, So if you're starting at a 10-year rate that's around 1% or lower, Mm -hmm. there's not much the Fed can do there either. right? So I believe that the Fed is sort of very important for panics and financial markets and will continue to be so. Uh, Sort of normal firefighting of recessions, there's just not much that they have at their disposal now. They'll do the best that they can, but they're simply not in a position, I don't think, to have dramatic effects. And so you're left with our less favored alternative, fiscal policy. Right, just, sure just a listen.
0: quick uh, um, yeah. a question, sure. uh, Marty. So is there a conditioning effect here? For example, if market sort of anticipates what the Fed, uh, Fed is going to do, whether it's short-term interest rate, conventional policy or qualitative easing for long-term interest rates, uh, when trouble starts, markets will gravitate there fairly quickly, right?
1: Absolutely. No, the markets, that's one of the reasons the Fed has worked very hard in the last, let me say, 15 years has been. So when Alan Greenspan was the chairman of the Fed, yeah. um, we used to talk about, you know, he the, he was a, a very mysterious, very opaque communication. <laughs> no one ever knew very clearly in advance what he was going to do.
0: He used to come out with that uh, black uh, handbag, I remember he,
1: Exactly. And, and there's been a real sea change, Bernanke reflecting his academic training and, and temper. The Fed moved very much to a situation of saying, look, we really want to be as obvious as we can. Uh, we want you to know exactly what we're going to do. Mm. Uh, so and, and, you know, there's a lot of research trying to write down sort of so-called Taylor rules named after John Taylor but yep. this beautiful equation describing to a first and second order what the fed would do as a function of the state of the economy. Hmm. And it turns out it's pretty, you know, not that mysterious, right. uh, you know, given the inflation target, given their estimates of unemployment rates, um, the Taylor rule basically tells you what would the fed do and to give you a great example. The Atlanta fed has on their facility, um, which anybody can play with, I often do it with MBAs. You put in different assumptions for the inflation target, et cetera. You can see what the Fed says we would do hmm. um, as a – this is the Atlanta Fed, not the Washington, but it's a good indication yeah. of what, the, what they would do. So they, they've worked very, very hard to uh, uh, to tell you what they're doing. Forward guidance, hmm. which some of your listeners may know of, is basically a fancy way of saying we are – You know, when the Fed says – we're gonna keep interest rates really low for a really long time. Yeah. They're basically helping the market say, oh, the Fed's gonna keep interest rates low for a long time, that should lower long interest rates in a way we talked about before, mm. and that should help the economy now. Right. So the, the Fed has really worked very hard to be painfully obvious. Mm. So surprise is not something the Fed wants. So some, it has a downside. So in
0: situations like we are in today, um, there isn't a lot they could do. Um, nope. You are, you know, close to that zero mark, and so yep. your argument is that um, you know the the issues that we typically think about fiscal uh, stimulus that takes time, that's very political, and so on. But what if we have a policy that is sort of automatic, right? When you hit this type of an issue,
1: right? So what I argued <clears throat> was that so let's think about. 2008, yep. when we hit this really big recession after a lot of debate and yelling and screaming, we increased the size of unemployment benefits. Hmm. In a very ad hoc way, it was better than doing nothing. But what I was arguing was that we could have a system in which the Fed, uh, sorry, in which uh, we wrote a law that said, when certain macro targets hit there, you know, say unemployment exceeds a certain number, or the interest rates hit zero, then unemployment benefits go up. Right. So if they're normally, you know, uh, the replacement ratio is let's say fifty percent, we would make it eighty percent. Right. Or if normally they would be last for twelve months. Uh, sorry, for twelve weeks, we can make them last thirty-two weeks. Yeah. When we hit those macro targets, and critically, when we got away so unemployment hit another number namely a better number Mm. the system would revert to normal right so this was my way but not just me other people as well of saying look we can have the benefits of short-term predictable stimulus Mm. without locking in entitlements that are very hard to take away right so that they would be responsible fiscally and uh, there are many many examples of those kinds of expenditures that we could put in a great example that marty feldstein talked about in the context of japan 30 years ago Mm -hmm. was he said they have a national sales tax and he said why not get rid of the national sales tax under certain circumstances or lower it Mm -hmm. and then reinstate it right Right. so that you know there's there's sales taxes there's a look right now we're talking about aid to local governments and you know if, if we don't Right now, because of the COVID crisis, states and um, uh, cities are facing roughly a trillion dollar deficit. Right. And unlike the federal government, they can't borrow.
0: They have to balance the budget, yeah.
1: So they have to cut expenditures right now. Mm. And you have to ask yourself, do you think that's a good idea to cut government expenditures by roughly a trillion dollars? when unemployment is currently eight and a half percent. That doesn't seem like a real good idea. Yeah. Well, if we had had a law that said if unemployment exceeds eight percent or if national sales tax, sorry, or if um, cities are in certain, uh, you have to write this carefully because you don't want the city of Chicago to do silly things knowing they'll be bailed out. So it's not a trivial thing to write.
0: But it's not that manipulatable, right, Marty? I mean, because uh, the, the the metrics right. are more macroeconomic metrics. You cannot mm-hmm. really manipulate them.
1: I agree. I, I mean, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, well, one has to be very careful to do it in a way that doesn't input perverse incentives. Yeah. But I think it's doable. And yeah. while there is risk to anything, the risk right now of massive cuts in government expenditures. Uh, both in terms of health and in terms of the economy, uh, to me, are outweighed uh, or outweigh any sort of long-term uh, alternative consideration. So, But rather than doing it in a panic, the, these arguments that I was making would say, let's do this when times are good. Mm. We can have thoughtful discourse. Uh, we can do this in the right way rather than in the heat of the moment uh, where we're unlikely to get it right.
0: Right. I want to touch on this phenomenon of real interest rates coming down sure. all, all over the world, right? So th- there is something going on. Yep. Um. And, and so so what do we know about that?
1: Well, you know, so we, we know some hard facts. Yeah. Right. That are just, you know, kind of those are true things, which is that <clears throat> real interest rates, um, just <clears throat> for readers or listeners who don't know, There's two kinds of interest rates. There's nominal interest rates. That's what you get when you put your money in a bond, typically, right? If inflation goes up, you'll get less. If inflation goes, it'll be worth less. So real interest rates are that nominal interest rate minus inflation over the period that you've held the asset. Mm -hmm. So if I get a 5% nominal interest rate, but inflation was 3%, I'm really only getting 2%. That's the real interest rate. OK, well, we have lots of good measures of real interest rates, including something called TIPS, which are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, yep. which are literally a promise by the government to give you a real interest rate. So I can just look it up. Hmm. And uh, but it's not just the US, it's the UK. There are many, many countries that have these sorts of things. What have those objects been doing? Well, they've been going down secularly. Hmm. So we just know the real interest rate has been going down. There are many theories about why. Uh Part of it is an aging world that wants to save more. Hmm. That, you know, if you have more savings, looking for safe uh, yields, that's going to drive down interest rates. So that's one set of explanations demographic. The other people like Larry Summers have talked about the kinds of investments that we make now in an age of technology are less capital intensive. Mm -hmm. So think about Google, the amount of capital that they need compared to U.S. steel. Pretty trivial, right? They need other kinds of things, but they don't need you know those big capital-intensive investments. So, you know, partly technology, partly demographics, partly—and uh, this will shock your readers—there's um, not as much technological progress now mm. as there was thirty years ago.
0: <laughs> you know, mm.
1: every undergraduate always thinks that you know we live in a brand new world where nobody you know, uh, nobody ever thought of anything new except for this generation. But do you have artificial intelligence, Marty? Well, that might work. (laughs) You know, we can look at productivity, the growth rate of productivity, and it's slowing down. Right. Uh, This always shocks people. I know when I talk to industry executives, they can always think of an example. Yeah. Uh, But as best as we can measure it, and it's not so easy to measure, the growth rate of productivity is slowing down. That's a big mystery. I want to recommend a book by my colleague, Robert Gordon, uh, who has written extensively on this issue and is one of the great experts and has documented this fact. And um, it it is really quite an astounding phenomenon.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, You know, let me give you one industry, one example from an industry I know a lot about, which is banking. Yeah. Um, um, You know, every time we get rid of a teller, a bank teller, which God knows we do, Mm -hmm. we have to hire somebody for cybersecurity. (laughs) Right. Right. So if you actually, now it is true, the number of people in banking is going down over time, but it's a lot less dramatic than you would think.
0: Mm. Um, It's just shifting specializations, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, we don't entirely understand why the growth rate of productivity is coming down, but it is. Mm.
0: And then you know, the, the really measurable attribute there too, which is sort of the aggregate population. Um, and so most developed countries, I think has uh, less than 2.1, which is supposed to be a replacement rate already. Correct. And if we continue on that track, I think developed countries as a whole hits a negative uh, negative mark around 2040 or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, well, the, you know, Japan is the most dramatic example yeah. of that, where it's actually going to be a much less populated place than it is now. Europe is quite similar. Um, the U.S. is, is uh, moving in that direction less dramatically, partly because traditionally we've had higher immigration levels. And so just what do we know about demographics? It turns out, you know, once you get past starvation levels, mm-hmm. that as people get richer, they have less kids. Right. It's just a universal fact. Yeah. Um, and uh, as countries have gone and in the economics of that are pretty simple, if you're, you know, rich, um, if you're working, if your wife is working, the opportunity cost of having a child goes to the yeah. roof. Right. Yeah. So any when I teach MBAs and there's you know, roughly 50 percent of the people in the class are women, I go, you know, the cost to you guys having a kid is taking a year off. And thank God you're very educated. That's a very expensive <laughs> thing. Right. So you respond by having less of it. Uh, You know, we can go on and on about it's a fascinating topic about how people substitute the market for their own time with kids. Mm. Right. So it's not a coincidence that people, you know, kids have uh, all sorts of uh, market inputs to their education. You know, tennis lessons, chess lessons, violin lessons, uh, tutors. That's all in view of mom and dad who are very, very busy doing other things. Anyway, so. Right. But it's a worldwide phenomenon. Um, and, yeah, it's absolutely right.
0: So, so in a world that population declines, and I don't know the exact numbers, but they say that the maximum is going to be around 9.5 billion. I'm talking about the entire world now. Mm-hmm. And then when we hit 9.5 billion, which is not too, too far into the future, um, it, it will start to decline. Uh, and I, I don't think we've ever been in a declining population world, right?
1: Um, not well. I mean, leaving aside. Not, not,
0: yeah, not sudden, not, you know, right. not due to sudden shocks. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, part of that is great news, right? I mean, you kind of think about it. And we often talk about inequality, which is, of course, horrible. Yeah. But if you ask yourself, what's the headline of the last 60 years? It's that inequality across countries has gone down. Why do mm. I say that? Well, just think China, India,
2: yeah,
1: right? They have now entered eras of relative prosperity. Um, and that's terrific news. Mm-hmm. And their population growth rate, less so in India in terms of population growth rate, but even in India, things are slowing down a bit. Um, right. The fact that the population growth rate is declining is a symptom of all the good news on the economic front. Mm-hmm. So I'm thrilled about that in terms of the environment, that's terrific stuff, right? Uh, sure. So there's lots of good news or reflects good news, but it obviously poses important challenges. An mm. age population is very different than a young population.
0: Right.
1: And we're struggling with understanding all the consequences of that.
0: Right. So the average age of the population will continue to go up.
1: Yeah, for I think a that's, that's certainly true. There are enormous fiscal challenges, healthcare expenditure challenges, Uh, In the United States to go with that, you know, our government, if you look at the budget, it is increasingly we are taking money that used to be spent on young people and spending it on old people, um, on healthcare, Social Security, etc. And uh, that's real challenges. Are we getting that right? I mean, right. So, you know, old people used to be very poor in this country. If you go back to the 60s, the 50s, they are now quite rich. Young people in many parts of this country don't have enough to eat, not enough education. Something doesn't seem quite right with the way we've allocated that, those resources.
0: Hmm. The young people might want their own country at some point. That's the really- <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you know, frankly, if you read blogs, you see a lot of tension. You know, people, yeah. I'm a boomer, right? I, I don't know how old you yeah. are, but I'm a boomer. And I think young people are pretty upset about it. And maybe they're right.
0: Right. Yeah. It's um, yeah, you know, you just have there, there's so many uh, so many things it's going to affect. Uh, just the population growth. Uh, for me, the productivity, you know, sort of stabilization. Um, you know, maybe we'll get another technology shock. Uh, who knows? That will take care of that in the future. Uh, but population, I think, is, is there's nothing much one could do about that trend.
1: Well, I don't think we want to. I don't, look, we can't. Well, I mean, to be clear, the United, look, one thing we can do in the United States is allowing for more immigration. Yeah. That's easy, right? There's lots of very talented Indians and uh, people in the Middle East and uh, Chinese people who are young would love to come here. This is a very not densely populated country. That's a political choice, right? I'm not saying we should do it, but it's certainly we could do it. And it would keep the population younger.
0: Yeah, we had sort of a monopoly on it for a long time. Not anymore. That's and true. I think countries like Canada uh, have really gotten onto that. I think. Well, so
1: I'm, I'm a Canadian, or I'm both yeah. actually. And um, it is a conscious decision of the Canadian government to take advantage of other countries' decisions to be more closed.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: you know, so... Uh, and they are they have a very rational immigration system, which is a point based system um, which says if you're educated, if you're young, we want you. Mm. Real simple.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so I, I want to touch on one more paper, Marianne. Uh So this is uh, related topic state dependent effects of monetary policy, the refinancing channel so, yeah. When interest rates go down, uh, people with higher interest mortgages, the 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 hope is that they will refinance it and uh, that puts some additional money in their pocket. Uh, but it, it, uh, what you're saying in the paper is that it depends uh, very much on uh, the state of the, the, the system at that point, right?
1: Right. So let, let me give you an extreme example. Yeah. Suppose that we were... Um in a very stable environment and everybody had you know bought their normal mortgages etc uh but let's say those mortgages were 4%. And then the Fed reduced interest rates. Hmm. Well there would be a huge number of people that if they refinanced at 4%, sorry if if the Fed lowered interest rates could really make a lot of savings by refinancing, right? right. We all had 4% now you could do 3%. There's a whole bunch of us that could do that. So you would expect to get a big kick in terms of the economy if the Fed cut interest rates after a long period of stability, say, at
2: 4%. Yeah.
1: But now imagine that the Fed was lowering interest rates for a while, like Mm. they've been doing now. Uh, You wouldn't necessarily uh, get a huge uh, 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 – well, let me be careful. This is even simpler. Suppose that the Fed was raising rates. OK, yes. so we start at 4 percent and now the Fed was raising rates 4 percent, 5 percent, 6 percent, 7 percent. If it's 7 percent, the Fed cut interest rates.
0: Mm.
1: Big effect. Well, you got to be careful. Well, uh, the people okay. who refinanced at 4 percent, 5 percent and 6 oh, percent. Right, if right, I okay. cut interest rates from 7, I'm not those people are going to go fine, but I'm not going to refinance.
0: Yeah, they're already locked into – these are fixed mortgages. Yeah, these are already locked even if they pay the
1: cost, you know, yeah. going from 7 to 6, you're not going to get the people at 5 and 4. They're right. not going to benefit from a mortgage rate that's 6.5 six now. Hmm. So you can see that it now becomes much trickier to think about what the Fed should or shouldn't do at various points in time, uh, how many people you're able to effectively get to refinance, depends on not the level of interest rate, but the whole path of interest rates, Mm. the pool of potential savings. Right. Right. So what this paper does is sort of work out when is monetary policy going to be most powerful and when is it going to be less powerful and what lessons we can learn from that about current monetary policy. Yeah.
0: And uh, so how much of the refinancing... Effect, um, you know, just approximately, Marty. How much, how much does it affect the, the economy, the refinancing aspect?
1: It As it's a big effect because remember, mortgage markets are a big deal. Yeah, and uh, it's so one channel that you know people, you know, the obvious channel. Well, I have more money in my pocket, so that's pretty obvious. But the other channel that people typically don't think about is many people are house rich, hmm. but liquidity constrained. Right. Right. So, for example, you can imagine that people have a bunch of home equity, but they'd like to uh, do repairs on the house. They'd like to buy a car. They'd like to go on vacation, but they can't borrow. They can't go into a bank. The bank's going to say, you know, we've looked at the numbers. We're not willing to make that loan. So they could do
0: what, what you call a cash out mortgage too, right? Precisely. They, they can yeah.
1: refinance if it's an attractive time to do it, take some of the equity out of their house, free them up to do consumption expenditures of other sorts. Hmm. And uh, that's a big deal. Now, but the other thing is what you find often also is uh, entrepreneurs uh, can do this to start businesses, small businesses. We're not talking about GM now. But all of these cash out refinancing can have a very big effect on consumption and a very big effect, actually, on small business formation.
0: Right. So this is this happens more readily when you have sort of the same direction of interest rates. Um, So if interest rates have been going down for a long time, as you as you um, lower it, you will get effect. Uh, But if you're kind of zigzagging, the effect may not be that high. Well, the
1: zigzagging, well, I would say the most extreme cases, imagine that interest rates were constant for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And if I then, so everybody has a 4% interest rate.
2: Right.
1: If the Fed lowers things to 3%, every single person in the economy has a mortgage would benefit from refinancing. Okay. So that's going to be a very powerful effect. So it's really the
0: stock, the stock of mortgages. So they really have to study the variations in in fixed rates that exist in the stock of mortgages in the economy. That can be computable, I would imagine. Well, so
1: in this paper, we compute the uh, various measures of the gains to refinancing at every Mm -hmm. point in time in, say, the last 40 years. So one thing you can do, this is the simplest thing that you can do, is just literally look like I can go in right now and have the data to look at every mortgage in, on the books. I can get that data. Yep. And then I can say, if that person refinanced, what could they refinance at? So now I have the difference in the interest rate they are paying, the interest rate that they would pay if they refinanced. And I can get the whole distribution at every point in time of what those, that interest rate gap looks like.
0: And that delta has to be more than the, the cost of refinancing too, right? Yes, so, yes. Fixed costs are yeah. crucial.
1: It's, yeah, because otherwise the gap would always be zero, right? Yeah. If it was costless to refinance, you would always refinance. Yeah. But you can't, yeah. both because of pecuniary fixed costs, but also the time, the effort, you know, all, all the, you know, we're all lazy a little bit uh, <laughs> um, and we're busy. Um, yeah. So, but what you do see are enormous variation over time in that distribution.
2: Right,
0: right. So so in conclusion, Marty, so given the situation that we are in, um, huge GDP uh, loss, monetary policy sort of hit the, the bottom, uh, both ends of the, the yield curve. We don't have automatic stabilizers in place. We have looks like um, sort of a conflict-based standstill. In Washington, regarding additional stimulus, what would we, what would you do in the next <laughs> six months? <laughs> six months. To yeah, one if year. I
1: had a compelling answer to that, you'd either <laughs> give me a Nobel Prize or make me president. <laughs> so I don't. I don't think I have a compelling answer. A couple things. Principles. First is good health policy is good economic policy. Now, mm. anything that we can do to get COVID under control will be a net win for the economy. Yeah. So that's important. The other thing I would emphasize to listeners is interest rates are incredibly low, which means it's incredibly reasonable. So think, ask yourself as a business person if you can Mm -hmm. borrow at 1%, what investments are worth borrowing to engage in? Right. Because interest rates are such a low number now for the United States government, the hurdle rate for social investments and stimulus should be very low. You're mm-hmm. basically borrowing for free.
0: But we don't invest it properly, typically, right? We don't have a portfolio prioritization process in the government.
1: Well, that, so, so that is, you know, so, so A, you're right. I totally agree with that. But B, it does say that there are enormous potential gains yeah. from thinking thoughtfully about what we could do.
0: And the point is both the government and the and the private individuals um, is in a situation that money is almost free. Yep. So if they can find right investments and that, that's where the trick is going to be, if you can find the right investments, then the returns are enormous.
1: I agree. And, and let me give you two examples of where yeah. we could probably agree pretty quickly. Testing. I know testing is expensive. The returns to testing are incredibly high socially,
2: mm.
1: right? Only because people will go to work if we test and act on that. So if the government has to borrow a billion dollars yeah. to do randomized testing, yeah. almost surely that's a great investment. Or
0: just give it to states
1: to do it. Yeah, I don't care if you know if yeah. there's a czar in Washington who's actually running it, but testing whether Pritzker's doing it or Cuomo's doing it or, you know, Gavin Newsom, it's a great investment. Yes. That's an easy one. That's an easy one. You get into more difficult longer term things. Look, I mean, this recession is very unusual in that women have been hurt very badly by it. Mm -hmm. Usually men suffer more in recessions because they're in industries that are more cyclical. Yeah. This recession is very different, Mm -hmm. right? Because women tend to be in high contact physical contact industries, nursing uh, services, et cetera. But th- so they're, they're hurt on that dimension in terms of unemployment, but they're the primary often for social and cultural reasons that I'm no expert on. They're in charge of the kids. Mm. They can't get back to work unless there's help for them with teachers, with uh, daycare, all those things. Mm. But think of that as an economist, the rate of return to investing in helping women It's a huge positive number if they can get back to work. Right, right.
0: Yeah, I mean, these are, you know, sort of socioeconomic policies. Um, You know, uh, do we have uh, policymakers? I mean, you know, we have people who are focused on economics and finance and, you know, uh, general uh, nuts and bolts of the economy. But do we have policymakers who take all this, you know, different avenues of data and make optimum decisions. Do do we really have a structure for
1: that? No. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could say, look, I'll give you an example of the kinds of things some other countries have done. So in France, uh, Macron has just appointed a incredibly interesting commission of leading thinkers, actually led by Jean Tyrol, who is Nobel laureate, and Olivia Blanchard, who is a very distinguished economist, chief economist for the IMF after a long career at MIT, of getting together the best and the brightest to think about France over the next 20 years mm. and start that conversation. You know, no one can commit to agreeing to what they say, but they will put interesting things on the table. Right. Canada has various um, avenues for ranking or calculating as best as we can, it's not perfect, the rate of return to different investments. Mm. That is something we could do.
0: I mean, we have the expertise, we just don't have the will to do it.
1: <laughs> we have a very complicated, chaotic federal system in which lots of people do lots of different things. Yeah. And, you know, the, the one thing I would say in defense of the United States, this is a very heterogeneous society. Uh, It is not Sweden. It is not Finland, where everybody looks the same, has similar backgrounds, uh, where we automatically sympathize with each other because we look the same way. (laughs) And that's actually an important social science point. Uh, So we have challenges because of our heterogeneity. Mm -hmm. But that heterogeneity can also be a source of strength because we can bring different perspectives and opinions to the table.
0: Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Marty.
1: Thanks so much for spending my pleasure. Time with me. My pleasure. I, I hope and you and your family are safe and sound and we all get through this together. Same
0: to you. Yeah, keep the
1: kids uh, away from each other. All
0: right. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> okay, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.